Uh, thank you. Shenanigans. Uh, yes. Glad to be, to co-produce this film with some wonderful people here in Hollywood. Uh, and it's been a long time. It's been a long time. So I'll try and remember, uh, everything that I can. Faden? Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. And welcome back to Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews all your favorite fictional restaurants, bars, and clubs in TV and film, as well as talk to the screenwriter, director, producer, even the actor on the whole process of the restaurant, that is. My name is Monis Rose. I am your host, and today... We are reviewing the restaurant called Shenanigans. Shenanigans. It is prominently featured in the film Waiting, the Ryan Reynolds film Waiting. Anyway, who did we bring on today? We brought on Dean Scholl. Dean Scholl is the co-producer of the 2005 epic. And let me tell you something. This interview... Well, first and foremost, this is actually part one of the interview. Part two will come right at you in another two weeks. The reason why we cut it into two parts is because it's just too good. Please listen. This is one of probably the funniest interviews Restaurant Fiction has ever done. And it's also one of the most educational. Anyway, here is the review of Shenanigans and our interview with Dean Scholl. When we review a restaurant on Restaurant Fiction, we like to do something very scholarly, almost Jonathan Gold-like, very Pulitzer Prize-type prose. We couldn't find anything to describe uh, that or to be that for shenanigans that we uh, the staff at restaurant fiction we have really really tried we we tried all our might to write a good review and i'm not talking about like a positive or a negative review i'm talking about just a good review and we couldn't now before though we go on to review shenanigans we're not giving shenanigans zero stars on Yelp, but bad Yelp reviews are pretty funny. Wait, so you just bring me in here to give my restaurant a bad review? Is that what's going on? All right, we're just going to fess up. Okay, guys, shenanigans, what is it? Is this really like an ugly duckling of a TGI Friday's, Chili's, Applebee's, Red Lobster, hodgepodge? The thing is, at least we felt going to those franchises, the waiters and waitresses actually care you know when restaurant fiction we see a menu and you're going to have your mozzarella sticks you're going to have your bowling alley type food in this franchise type restaurant but the thing is the food just sits there the wait staff they don't care 
they don't, I mean, excuse the language. I know this is a scholar, it's supposed to be a scholarly restaurant podcast. Scholarly restaurant podcast, is that what this is? Thank you. I mean, yeah, we, we don't just want to go in once and say, oh, it was amazing, or it sucked, or it was just okay. We go to the restaurant at least five times, and we go with several different people, and we go during the day, we go at night. I think you guys are probably one of the uh, greatest, probably in the nation, fictional restaurant reviewers. Every single time we went, we ordered the veggie burger. We ordered the regular burger. We ordered whatever the mystery meat burger. Well, assuming there was mystery meat or some kind of mystery meat. And yeah, I don't even think the wait staff even took our order. We saw food always wait, but food never came. So we were technically, we were just waiting all the time. Now, are we giving this zero stars? Are we giving, you know, are we going to put this up on TripAdvisor? Are we going to put this up on Yelp? No, that's not what restaurant fiction is about. But just be aware. Be aware when going to shenanigans that you might be waiting a very, very long time. So are we getting the lowest review ever on your fictional restaurant review show? I can't really say yes or no because... There are just many restaurants out there. Let's just say they set the bar and because of where shenanigans lies, it will always remain and have a special place in our heart for being where it's at. But <laughs> Yeah, way to sugarcoat it. Nice job. Yeah, indeed. Would you like to rebuttal or if you were reviewing shenanigans you know the uh special place in your heart that no this is not this is not a witch hunt we're not you know we did not bring you up to throw rocks at shenanigans no no but we want we want to get your expertise on this review well you're you're lucky i came from work i was going to try and stop by my house and find an old menu we have some horrible things that the marketing department came up with. Before the movie came out, I think there's a bunch of series of teaser posters with chicken flied steak, which literally has flies in it, and just a series of disgusting dishes, which at the time I thought, wow, that's some great photography. That's kind of cool, little teaser posters. But now I have these posters that I don't want to hang on the wall because they're kind of disgusting. It's one of the things we tried to avoid originally is Rob, the writer, we didn't want to make it too much of a gross-out comedy, and we even tried to stay away from the whole scene that's sort of made the movie's popular because of now is the spitting in the food sequence. They do much more than that, of course, if you've seen the movie. But the studio really wanted something to uh, put in the trailer. So Rob's like, I know I didn't want... He didn't really want to write that scene, but he's like, if I'm going to write it, I'm going to make it really gross. We're going to put pubic hairs and all these wonderful things. So he, he did like, he just went to 11 and did this conveyor belt scene. And I think it helped that we had some up and coming talent at the time. Dane Cook, of course, and a friend of mine, Skylar Stone, putting dandruff in the food. Potato flakes. We actually put potato flakes in his hair <laughs> to, to do that. It was some uh, ridiculousness. Unfortunately, the other guys in the scene were actual cook staff or waiters at the Bennigans that we shot in. No which is way. no longer there. Don't eat at the beat. <laughs> it was a bit against it right outside of New Orleans. So what is your rating then of shenanigans? Oh, can we go six stars? <laughs> uh, I'm going is it six. Star? Is it Michelin star status? Uh, there's a degree of sarcasm in the film, so I'm going to go with six stars. 
six stars, guys. Six stars for... It's the highest rating you've had on the show, right? Six stars. We really enjoy people, uh, guests who believe in their restaurants. You know, we, we at Restaurant Fiction, we are outsiders. And we always want to see the positives in, say, something that we can't find. So we really appreciate that, especially in, you know, the, the fly burgers or the burgers with spin in it and all of that. Yeah. Well, you have no idea, actually, how much detail our production designer, um, Devra, and the, the whole team went into as far as giving it that authentic chain restaurant feel, but not making it feel like one particular restaurant, other than the fact that we did shoot in Old Bennigan's and it had the brass. But, you know, they have little elements like, well, you, you said you're going to wait for your food for forever. Well, one of the things they do in these restaurants is they put tchotchkes on the wall. So she had all these wonderful sections designed. Like uh, one was like a carpet bagger, medicine, snake oil type section. One had mystery beasts, including the chupacabra and the Loch Ness monsters of chupacabra appearance. And then you had I don't know, like a magic section. And of course, we had this wonderful Rube Goldberg device on the back wall that the department actually got to work where you set like a, a beer, sort of this guy that did these cartoons, these animations, these sort of single frame animations that would uh, take a very simple task and and create a very difficult way to go about accomplishing that task. In this case, you set a beer down and eventually the beer is poured into a mug through a series of random popping balloons and little uh, balls falling down mazes. But it was supposed to just be in the background. The team that put it together really wanted to make it work, so they would stay late and have a beer and... They finally got it to work, worked on the first take, and it's at the end of the movie. So if you guys have watched the movie and not stuck around to the end, check it out. It's probably on YouTube. Putting that in perspective, we will bump up our review at least a couple of stars. Seven. We're going seven stars. We're always growing. We're always learning on Restaurant Fiction. And sometimes we just have to have a a guest to put things in perspective. That's right. And (laughs) on that note, I'm going to open a beer that you've given me here. Why a restaurant? Why do a movie on some kind of second-rate Bennigan's or Chili's? And well, at the time, I, would, I, I wanted to make a movie. I was in Orlando, Florida, working at a theme park studio, two theme park studios, Universal and Disney and GM Studios at the time. And you kind of get the movie bug. You want to make a movie, and there's not that many scripts flying around Orlando. I'd read my share of, of bad scripts, some good, some that went on to get made. This one came to me through eating at a TGI Fridays, my waiter had handed me the script. That was Rob. He was working at a TGI Fridays. So you want to know where the idea came from. It came from him. And he'd worked at a series of, of chain restaurants, I think like a Black Angus. He sort of realized the archetypes of the people that worked there, like the bitchy waitress that had worked there too long and the stoner bus boys and the, the you know, manager with a big ego great when you read a script and you're laughing out loud and people are like, what are you reading? And you're like, oh, you know you've got something there. But it had these amazing jokes and funny scenes and then over the years we massaged it into uh, a movie that I was like, can't believe we got it made. <laughs> we got it on the screen. I will say though, like working at a theme park, you know, I started there as a tour guide initially. There's a thing that happens where people are smiling, happy, and then when the guests walk away, they're like, oh, And this movie had that in in spades and it had the whole corporate be happy at the table element that uh, I think was really right for the time back then. And I really connected with that off the bat. As a former chef and who has have, who has a lot of still friends in the, you know, in the cooking world, whether 
uh, waiters, waitresses, bartenders, chefs as well. The cooking movie, the restaurant movie that everyone still mentions is waiting. It's not chef. It's not burnt. It's not ratatouille. It's not the big night. It is waiting. Of course, there's a subversive nature of this whole um, game that they play throughout the film where they uh, sort of surprise each other with genitalia, <laughs> which seems ridiculous. But, uh, you know, I worked at the Great Movie Ride, and I probably shouldn't say whether I was surprised to have some of that nonsense thrown in my face <laughs> at one time. But working at Disney and having this sort of thing maybe or maybe not going on behind the scenes. I won't incriminate any people that did this, although I probably should. That was not just happening at Disney and at, at the restaurant where he worked, but... It seems like everybody had a story. I remember even Dane Cook had a story. He's like, yeah, we had this game there called Punch Each Other in the Asshole. And they just <laughs> punch each other as hard as they could. There's just these things that people do to pass the time uh, to make uh, a boring job more interesting. And then being able to relate that when, uh, I think it was Jill that was talking to me about the script when she first read it, this girl that worked at one of the water parks. She's like, it'd be great if this were related to what's going on in the restaurant. And I think Rob had had some ideas on that as well. So it became a parallel where we had the sort of the bishop or the wise dishwasher sort of relate that to um, more of a philosophical statement. So when I was a chef at this oyster bar in Silver Lake, guys, for those who have never been to Silver Lake, it's a very hipsterized part of Los Angeles. Our dishwasher, he would only come in once a week. He would always come in an hour late. He would come in with two bottles of tequila and he would come in with, I guess, like a 24 pack of Coronas. You know, no one would ever complain of his lateness. Like everyone just expected it. And he would always give me a beer and a shot. And he'd always say like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Anyway, I, I once befriended him. We'll call him Felix. And I said to Felix, like, what's your deal? Yeah. He was like a former, like a drug mule, like a cartel mule. And he had, I learned that he had like three houses in Santa Barbara, all paid for in cash. And he put like three of his children through college already. <laughs> and he was the dishwasher. That's like, there's, there's a bartender out here that I worked with. He's a millionaire, but he's tending bar. And in, in honestly, in waiting, that's, Bishop, we wanted him to be the character that didn't need to be there, but he's sort of like this Zen dishwasher that just, he wants to be there. And uh, the name came from, I believe, the movie Alien. There's a character named Bishop. And we were looking for more of an um, intellectual type in the realm of Jeff Goldblum. Matter of fact, Jeff Goldblum, I remember I was living with Rob when we first moved out here, and he left us this wonderful Goldblum rambling voicemail about how he was going to pass on the film but he wished us a lot of luck and it was it was fantastic we were just excited to get this wonderful Goldblum voicemail I think at one time we were looking considering Snoop Dogg I remember Rob and I reading the lines pretending like we were Snoop Dogg to see if it would work someone suggested Shy McBride who ended up being just great he nailed it he nailed it What's your worst restaurant experience? I was working at Disney. Eventually, I got into some stuff that I really wanted to do. I was starting to work with Imagineering on a few projects, doing attraction design. Got to work on the Tower of Terror after working at the movie ride and the backstage studio tour. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool because, you know, if I get to be an Imagineer, I can grow my hair long and grow a beard. You know, I could be rebellious. That was like a cool thing you could do at Disney. So when we got an offer out here and I was like, well, got an offer to 
produce a film in Hollywood that might be in the movies. Maybe it's time to leave Disney. Come to Hollywood. So we packed up the stuff and moved out here. Then we got kind of stuck in what some people call development hell. They kept saying the movie should be made in two or three months, two or three months, two or three months. You know, Rob was like, hey, I don't want to have to get a job waiting tables again. We came out here to, to make it. We've already celebrated. We're in the Hollywood Reporter. We're like, we're supposed to be making a movie. And everything had stalled. It turned out later that, you know, Artisan was no longer holding up. But in that interim, after several years and, and spending money, I was working with a producer out here doing some wonderful films like The Good Girl as an assistant to her. But it wasn't paying the bills. And my friend's like, hey, you can, make, you can make incredible cash just working at this restaurant at night. So I worked at this restaurant here in town. After quitting my job to be a producer in Hollywood about waiting tables, I ended up moving out here and ending up waiting tables. So I'm like, oh, this isn't going as we planned. And so I'm working at this restaurant where a lot of uh, power players are, like four or five celebrities in the restaurant at any given time. Like you kind of have to know where this restaurant is. It had a small little sign about two inches tall. I remember just being a little bit down on it, although we had a great time there. I remember one time I had a giant chunk of cheese and I was grating the cheese into someone's split pea soup and he was a big manager here in town, represented a lot of the major comedians. And that chunk of cheese fell off into the pea soup and it splattered all over him and whoever he was trying to impress. And he went and complained about me and I'm like, oh. I can't even get this. I can't even get this waiting thing to work. This waiting tables thing, much less the waiting movie thing. That was kind of a low point. But I remember later going in with the other producers, like Chris Moore, who had done American Pie, and these guys that I really admire, going into the management company. And there he was to pitch his clients to us. And he's like, Dean, how are you doing? He's really nice. He's like, oh, how do you know this guy? I'm like, oh, he's been really nice to me now. But he wasn't that nice to me uh, last time I saw him. But he came in the restaurant enough that he knew who I was. It was a, a nice turn. And luckily, everything sort of turned around. I got to uh, put in my dues here in Hollywood. You're just making a split pea soup extra cheesy. I mean, there was no no problem with that. And and the, and the spillage, that's just sloppy seconds. That's all it is. You're naming like names of the featurettes <laughs> on the DVD. You must have watched this recently. Did some research. <laughs> what was the name of that restaurant? It's, uh, it's called Orso. It's no longer here. This is not, oh, how'd you get your start kind of show. But Dean has an amazing life. And there is an Easter egg in waiting that he already mentioned, which was a, a picture of a chupacabra. A chu- am I pronouncing that right? Chupacabra. So that's actually an Easter egg to a special part of Dean's life. Uh, Dean, do you mind extending that, going going off of why the chupacabra is significant? Yeah, in a few of my films, you'll see in the credits at least, or somewhere I'll try and hide a chupacabra. When I was working at the great movie ride at Disney and Jim Studios. There was a um, poster in the hallway that was signed up for the cast communication committee, and there were just a few names on there. And we, as a joke, we put a picture of the chupacabra up next to it. And if you don't know what the chupacabra is, it's sort of a mystery beast. It's sort of like an alien meets uh, Bigfoot meets uh, looks like a kangaroo with spikes, and it sucks the blood out of goats. And so people in Puerto Rico and Mexico often report that their goats are found dead with no blood. And they're, they've fallen victim to the chupacabra. So we heard about this fascinating mystery beast. We found this ridiculous picture of it. We put it up next to the 
other sign-up sheet. And we had hundreds of people sign up to become members of the Chupacabra Awareness Committee (laughs) and hardly anyone for the uh, official committee. So on a goof, we decided, since we had all these names on our sign-up list, that we should make it a real thing. And we started having monthly meetings with PowerPoint presentations, telling people about the Chupacabra. And it it got completely out of control. Uh, Two questions. The goal wasn't to make money, or was it? Was it like, hey, we're going to become filthy now billionaires. We're going to ask all these old people for 15, 20% of their annual income or something like that? No, at first it was just to lampoon all these committees, all these sign-up you know, people would meet and talk about communication. I think uh, people were a little fed up with that. So when they came to ours, it was um, sort of like a royal water buffalo. If you watch the Flintstones, you know, it just became like a, a social club that most people understood was tongue-in-cheek even though we had a website and a t-shirt and, and newsletters later. Occasionally, a few people thought it was real and they would come in and, and that would just, that kind of got us into some trouble. Wait, like like who? Like what kind of people? Yeah, well, somebody came into the first uh, meeting. They were very excited that people were, that there was an organization to let people know that this beast was real and that he could maybe get me a dead chupacabra. And I was like, what? I want to make sure he's not messing with me, right? And he's with this other guy who was kind of just hovering around. And then I could tell he was serious by something in his eyes as a guy from Puerto Rico. And um, so he said, let's go upstairs. Let's talk about this. And he showed me a book. He's like, this is called El Guerra Diablos. It's an aquatic version of the Chupacabra. My brother can get one. I can have it shipped to you. And I'm like, yes, please ship me this dead Chupacabra. So um, we thought that was kind of ridiculous and, and fun. The guy that was with him, he showed me this ID and he says, I'm with the CIA. I'm like, what are you talking? What are you doing? He's like, don't worry. This isn't a real investigation. The guy told me about the Chupacabra. I told him I'm with the CIA. He's like, what you're doing here is fine. You're not inciting panic. Don't worry. This is a fun thing. I'm like, okay, that's cool. And then cut to, I know it's a long story. Do you want to hear the whole story? It's a little off topic. We do. Yeah, absolutely. So the organization grew and we had... We would, we would go to restaurants, bring it back to restaurants. We would go to this place called The Daily Grind and a few other spots, but there we would have uh, coffee and beers. We would have uh, libations, like a Corona with uh, grenadine representing the blood of the Chupacabra. And we, no Bloody Mary mixed in a Corona, not like a Michelada or nothing. No, no. And we put posters up all over the city. We were inspired by Andre the Giant Obey. And we had a guy at Kinko's. They would give us free printouts. So the city was covered with Chupacabra posters one night. And uh, morning show got a hold of me. Started going on there, singing songs with them. And, and it was just completely out of control. We had way too much fun. And we considered getting religious status to see what would happen there as a sort of a parody organization. To cut to the chase, we got a call. The vice president, who was my roommate, and I... I received a call from this guy that said he had a dead chupacabra. It was the same guy from like months and months before. He finally got it shipped in from Puerto Rico. We put on our outfits, like we felt like some sort of x file suits, you know, and we went to this guy's house and, and the CIA agent was there as well. I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? He's like, I don't know. This is ridiculous. I'm like, yeah, I know it's ridiculous. He's like, I just wanted to see what this creature is. The, the guy called me. I haven't talked to him since that meeting that you had, which was a party really. Went into this guy's back room. And he had an architect's table, a little slanted table. And on it was this dead creature, uh, which he called the aquatic version of the Chupacabra, El Guerra Diablos. 
something like that. It looked like a mutilated stingray with eyeballs and little hands. It was probably four feet tall, but it looked like a real creature. It had little feet. And we were like, what is this thing? And what have we gotten ourselves into? This was all just a giant goof. I mean, we had some cool t-shirts. <laughs> Turned out later, eventually stuff gets on the internet. And in Puerto Rico, they have this thing, I guess it's similar to the jackalope in Texas, where it's a little bit of a joke. And it looks like they sell these mutilated carcasses to unsuspecting people in gift shops. Like they bring them out of the back. That's how it happened, I believe, in this story. <laughs> so it turns out there's a stingray that if you flip it over upside down, it looks like an alien. And so people carve it up and put other body parts on it and then sell it as an alien creature. But it really is a, a sea creature that looks reminiscent of a, a demon chupacabra. Aquatic chupacabra. Would you hold your chupacabra worship sessions, say, in a, in a shenanigans? <laughs> I like that you call them worship sessions. Uh, I'm sure that if, the, yes, I'm sure that we would. It seems like the appropriate place for this sort of nonsense. If you want, after the show, I'll show you the secret handshake. Yeah, I'll, I'll induct you if you like. Please, yes. We don't promote any kind of organized or disorganized religion, but Man, this just seems too cool to pass up. Well, we love the fact there was some other stuff that inspired us before, the Church of the Subgenius, and we handed up these flyers dressed in black saying, you may die tomorrow, chupacabras are coming, and we had our own phone line to get people in just to keep the whole thing going. Today, it's nice to see this sort of notion continued with things like the Flying Spaghetti Monster, which is, I think, now recognized as an official religion. We wanted to just be fun and positive, and, which is really the spirit of shenanigans and waiting. Let's bring it back. See how, see how that worked? Yeah, work? yeah. Thank you for that, Dean. We will talk to you again in another week with part two of the shenanigans waiting interview. If you want to see Dean's other work besides waiting, he also has still waiting and a bunch of other stuff. Just go on his IMDb page. Look at it, click it, watch it, do your thing. As for me, my name is Monis Rose. You can check out all of our additional episodes on the iTunes podcast page, as well as our reviews at www.restaurantfiction.com. And as always, guys, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to... Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Welcome to Sherwin-Williams. Hi there. I heard paints are 30% off. Yep, and stains too. Right here. Mm-hmm. Only at your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Right now? Well, August 29th through September 9th. Ah, bring it in. I'm a big hugger. It's cool. Ask Sherwin-Williams August 29th through September 9th and save 30% on paints and stains with sale prices starting at $26.94. Only at your local Sherwin-Williams store. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. 
Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft Tells. Welcome to the House of Roll.